Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to GranthamChurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I feel like I'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching this morning. Is that okay? There'll be some preaching in there. There always is, but I'm going to sit down for this. This morning, we continue our fall sermon series, Spiritual and Religious. And if you're just joining us for this fall series, Spiritual and Religious is a seven-week series that invites us to see that spirituality is really a vague individualistic impulse toward the transcendent, and it's not enough to shape us as disciples of Jesus. As the New Testament will attest, there is good in religion. As we saw last week, Christ himself was a religious Jew and correctly understood the Christian religion has handed down observance of the church calendar and spirit-infused practices like prayer, scripture, creeds, sacraments, and ancient liturgies to properly form us into his image. As I've said over and over, and I'm going to keep saying, God doesn't need these things. We need them to be properly formed in our worship. Here's where we've been and where we're going in this series. We began the series with a message, I see that you're very spiritual. And uh, in that first message, we looked at where the modern disdain for religion began. We commended those who say they're spiritual. But we said that Jesus requires more from us if we're going to be disciples of Jesus. We don't just get to make it up as we go and, 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 and just make Jesus our own personal Lord and not see him connected to the church and to religion. And then the second week, we look at spiritual but not religious. And we saw in that sermon where we're all actually religious beings. As Jamie Smith said, we're all liturgical animals. And so we're either going to be shaped by the competing forces, religious forces of the world, and we looked at some of those and some of the idols in our culture, or we are going to have our hearts recalibrated through Christian worship. And not just on Sunday morning, but all throughout our week. Uh, Last week we looked at Jesus was religious, and I made the strongest case I know for showing that Jesus himself was a religious Jew, that Jesus had religious practices, and if Jesus was religious, we should want to be religious as well, and that should be our prayer uh, as a church. Which brings us to the fourth installment in our spiritual and religious series, a message I've entitled, Gracious Orthodoxy. Little side note here, I will be speaking at chapel on Tuesday morning for the students in the room. And anybody else who wants to join us, I'm going to, in 25 minutes, talk about the, 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 the content of this sermon series. So pray for me. That's gonna, it's going to be a challenge, but I think it's good for us to hear. Uh, so you have a summary of the message this morning in your bulletin if you want to look at that. It says, Jesus didn't come to start a religion 
but he did come to establish his church. Therefore, it was inevitable that a religion would form around his life and teachings, for Judaism couldn't contain Christ. And while it's true that we have many different expressions of the church today, we ought to recognize that all Orthodox, and I mean little o Orthodox, all Orthodox Christian churches confess an ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, which we have recited already this morning and we have sung together uh, in worship. In the sermon this morning, I want to share about the birth of the Christian religion our unity in a common creed, and why we need to be graciously uncompromising in the historic beliefs of Christianity. So that you can imagine there's a lot to talk about there. I'm going to do the best I can with the time that I have, so please pray for me. I, I want to touch on some things. I, I didn't feel like I could leave any of this out. Some important things. Let's begin with this objection. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. Uh, we've already seen a couple weeks in this series this definition. What is religion? It comes from the root word religio, which means to bind something together. Religion is a socio-cultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning, purpose, and direction to a person's life and to the world around them. So this is, um, this is a communal thing, religion. It's not an individual thing. We said a functional definition of religion for our series is this. We're referring to practices of prayer, scripture, sacrament, liturgy, the church calendar, etc. Handed down to us so that we would be properly formed in our worship. And I want us to be able to distinguish between three different things this morning. Christ, the church, and Christianity. All right? Christ, the church, and Christianity. Who is Christ? We say that Christ is God. Uh, we say, well, wait a minute. You know, some would scoff at Jesus never actually said he was God. He said, yes, he did, just not in that way. And you know, he did go around saying, I am God. But what Jesus did do, right? What Jesus did do, and he knew that how subversive this was, is he referred to himself as the coming Messiah. He said he's the son of man of, of, of the book of Daniel and the Old Testament. He said that before Abraham existed, he existed. He forgave sins, which people said, no, only God can do that. And Jesus was like, uh-huh, yeah. So Jesus was God. And they recognized this from from the very first, from the beginning, there in the first century. He is God. As John said in chapter 1, he is the logos of God. Uh, he is the mind of God made flesh, he said in verse 14. Come to dwell, come to tabernacle with us. And as we, we heard in the responsive reading this morning from Paul in Colossians 1, he says the same thing, that Jesus is God. He's the head of the church. He's established all things. This is who Jesus is. Again, we said there's Christ, but there's also the church. The church, what is that? The church is the gathered community of the baptized that Jesus said he came to found. The church, the baptized, the community that says that Jesus is Lord. That is the earliest Christian creed. Jesus is Lord. And Christ is God. Listen to this. Christ is God. Church is the community of Christ, and Christianity is the religion. Christianity is the religion created by the church around Jesus Christ. 
Let's look at the words of Jesus to further this concept this morning. You know this passage, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I tacked on verse 17 because sometimes I think we forget this. I forgot my little white cup this morning, so I got a swig from this bottle. I apologize for that. Doesn't feel sophisticated, but... Jesus said this. These are Jesus' words. Notice they're in red. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that's him, himself, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So look at this. God gave us Jesus. Right? God gave us Jesus. Look at the next passage. This is in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, this is where Jesus is, has gone far north out of Galilean territory to Caesarea Philippi, just outside of a cave that uh, historians say is believed to be, at least symbolically, sort of the entrance to the underworld. Right? Jesus has gone into Gentile territory to this cave that sort of symbolizes the entrance to the underworld, to Hades, that Greek concept, where, where Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, okay, and no man has revealed this to you, but only the Spirit of God. This is true, Peter. This is true. And Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter which his name means rock in the Greek. And on this rock, I will build my church. On what? Not on Peter. You know, some Christians would say that. We would say, no, no. On the rock of his confession, on the rock of Peter's confession, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You, you get this image of a fortified city, Hades, or hell, if we want to call it that. And Jesus says, those gates will not stand. The kingdom of God is coming after you. <laughs> like that. So God gave us Jesus. Look at this. Jesus gave us the church. And look at John 16. A passage that I don't know if we really hear read very much and we think much about in the church. John chapter 16. Jesus is talking in the context here about, about going away. Of course, we know he's talking about dying and being crucified and being raised. But the disciples don't fully understand this. And Jesus leaves them with these words before his high priestly prayer. He says, John 16 verse 12, I have much more to say to you. So Jesus has been ministering three years, and Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now understand, more than you can now bear. I cannot give it all to you now. Do you hear Jesus saying that? But when he, look at this, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So I have more to say, but the spirit is going to say it for me when I'm gone. Jesus said he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So you get this image as we know Jesus will ascend to the Father. That Jesus is telling the Holy Spirit what to say to us. I like that. He will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus said, I come on the authority of the Father. You can believe what I'm saying. I will tell the Spirit what to tell you to continue this work. I want us for a moment here to consider 
What does this much more to say to you include? Think about that. What does the much more to say to you include? Would it not include the good news to the Gentiles? Right? Because Jesus with his disciples said, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of Israel, because that had to come first. It was in the line of Israel that we have this redemptive story. So Jesus says, go to Israel first. And what we see, of course, later is that uh, through Peter's vision, right, of the blanket with the unclean foods upon it, and, and the Apostle Paul being called uh, to minister to the Gentiles, we see this most certainly should be included in what Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, but you can't bear it. You can't bear it. What else? Maybe, maybe what about this? Things that the Spirit would later lead. How about the abolishment of slavery? You know, a lot of people want to criticize Jesus and especially Paul and say, uh, why didn't they just all out abolish slavery? Well, all in good time. You can't bear these things all at once, but that's exactly what happens. Christians, you cannot deny, led this movement of the abolishment of slavery. Or how about the equality of women and, and such things like this? We, we see the beginnings of it with Jesus, equalizing men and women, allowing Mary to sit at his feet. But later on, the disciples will get it, and they will further the work of the Spirit. How about the development of Christian theology? You know, it's going to take about a hundred years for them to notice, ah, there's the Father in there, and then there's the Son in there, and then there's the Spirit. Ah, the Trinity. A father is God, the son is God, the spirit is God. We slap a name on it, we call it the Trinity. It's right there. It just takes some time to see that our God is mysteriously three in one, which we've confessed in worship this morning. In understanding, of course, Christ's nature, they'll begin to, to think about this. How is Jesus fully God and fully man? And doctrines, of course, will develop through the church. The development of the Christian religion, as we said. Practices of prayer and, and, and scripture reading and, and meditation and sacrament and the church calendar and liturgy and hymns. All of these things will come. So God, listen to this, God gave us Jesus, Jesus gave us the church, and the church, by the power of the Spirit, created Christianity. Now, I, I, I know I need to say that that doesn't mean the church has gotten everything right and everything was inspired and the Spirit has led everything. And some of the things have come from another spirit, <laughs> not the Spirit of Jesus. But it is true what Jesus said. I have much more to say to you. And I will say it. The Spirit will lead you. So let's be clear. We don't claim that Christianity is ultimate truth. Some heads came up when I said that. Christianity claims that Jesus is the ultimate truth. Let's get that right. We don't claim that Christianity is ultimate truth. We claim that Jesus is the ultimate truth, which means that Jesus revealed truth to us. Do you hear that this morning? Jesus said, I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus gives us truth, and we take that seriously as Christians. Therefore, the Christian religion involves what we would call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, that is right beliefs. There are some things that we can count on, that we confess in worship, are true. 
Don't we need that in the world today when so much is up for, uh, you know, just interpretation and opinion and well that you've got your truth and I've got my truth. We have a saying for that, my, my truth and your truth. Whatever happened to the truth? Just the truth. And Jesus is that truth. And so the Christian religion, as I said, involves orthodoxy, but it also involves orthopraxy. That is right practices or actions. This is why it's important to have beliefs, because beliefs are connected to action. What you believe determines how you live. You know, sometimes that poo-poo on theology and say it doesn't matter. It does matter. How do you think the church of Nazi Germany supported Hitler? It's called bad theology. Theology affects living. Remember what we said last week about the purpose of the Christian religion. We said this, there, it's twofold. We said the purpose of the Christian religion is to properly form disciples to be like Christ. This is why the church created Christianity, the Christian religion, so that we would be properly shaped and formed as liturgical ritualistic animals that we are so that the world doesn't do that for us. We also said, number two, that it is to preserve and pass on faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't simply want to become a Christian. We want to become Christian. Did you catch that? We don't want to simply become a Christian, like say some prayer, like, I'm in. No, we want to become Christ-like. That's what Christians mean. Big difference. And in order to become Christian, we must be discipled by Christ through the Christian religion, which again gives us practices of prayer. That shapes us as disciples. Scripture, sacraments, liturgies, creeds, the church calendar, so that we're shaped by how Jesus has oriented the world around his life, death, and resurrection, as opposed to whatever the world throws at us and tells us to do and have us to worship. Remember, this is for our proper formation of worship. So we're, we're, we're by nature liturgical, ritualistic animals, and we need religion to become like Christ. And therefore, I think it's important, you see, for our spiritual but not religious culture, a society that increasingly scoffs at organized religion to consider how Jesus was religious, which we did last week, and then how the Christian religion took shape in the first few centuries of the church. I think it's important for us to understand that. This, this, you see, will help us to see the, the good in religion and the value in embracing ancient countercultural practices of the church that are so relevant for our postmodern world. As Robert Weber said, the future of the church is ancient. The future of the church is ancient. Maybe what we're looking for has already been said and done. We need to pay attention to that. So let's reflect on the birth of Christianity for just a few minutes. As we've said already, you know, this starts with Jesus. Three years of ministry claiming that he is the Messiah, that he's, he comes to proclaim the kingdom of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. His disciples hear this. They don't fully understand it, but they later will when Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, and raised 
from the dead three years later, you know, or three days later. You know, N.T. Wright said this. He said, the only way that I know, and he's like, you know, the top New Testament scholar today. He said, the only way that we can, we can explain the explosive growth of the early church is that the tomb really was empty and that people believe they really saw Jesus. It is the only way to understand the growth of the early church. As we said, Jesus was crucified, dead and buried and resurrected, and, and people already, his disciples already in his life, worshipped him. I remember the disciple, you remember this, who said uh, when, when he saw Jesus alive, resurrected, there is this, this phrase there of adoration and of worship of Jesus being Lord and God. And of course, this continues. Jesus is seen for 40 days before ascending to the Father, before sending his Spirit. Many disciples received the Spirit of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, these disciples who are afraid and scared and, and don't know what to say or do are given, given power from God. In Acts 2, 42 through 45, it gives us a snapshot of their shared living as these Jewish Christians continue to worship in the temple. But they are also now worshiping in their homes. They're breaking bread. They're practicing communion together. They're sharing of their goods so that no one is in need. They're caring for, uh, for women and widows and the outcast and the overlooked. The book of Acts records the growth of the church over the next several decades. And Paul encounters, we see in Acts 9, the risen Christ through a blinding light. God sets him apart to minister and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And already we see the church starting to expand. We have the church in Jerusalem that worships a certain way, and then the church in Antioch that worships a different way. And so in Acts 15, the church has its first council to talk about their differences. What must Gentiles do to be saved? What must Gentiles do to become Christians? And they settle that matter, and they open wide the gate for Gentile inclusion. We see churches are planted all across the Mediterranean, and by the end of the first century, the gospel has reached the heart of the empire, Rome itself. You'll see the book of Acts actually ends that way as a way of saying not that the story is over, but that the, but that the gospel has gone out just as Jesus said it would. It has reached Caesar's household. Nothing can stop it now. Christian persecution in the first century is real, but it's mostly sporadic. You remember the fire of Rome under Nero, uh, where uh, Nero wants to expand Rome, and they won't give him the, the uh, part of the city that he wants. And so he burns it down, blames it on the Christians to scapegoat them, and then and does terrible things to them. And then in A.D. 70, Christians are also involved in that persecution of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. We see there at the end of the first century, the last books of the New Testament are written, the Gospel of John probably in the book of Revelation that testifies to what is really going on behind empire and that we have a king already and that he will come to sort it all out. We, what we know about their worship, Jews were probably a little bit more liturgical, at least in the beginning, than Gentiles were. We can think of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, I believe it is, that describes these house church services. They're kind of like Quaker services, you know. Everybody comes and, and brings a hymn or brings a prayer, has a prophecy, and they're just being led by the Spirit. 
This is what we can see, just a glimpse of, of early Christian worship. In the second century, Christians began to experience greater opposition and persecution. Uh, we know from history and from, from his own writings, Pliny the Younger, who's an imperial magistrate working under the emperor Trajan, and is, is sent out to investigate these early Christians. Who are they? What do they believe? Are they a threat to the empire? Because early Christians, they met in secret. And so not a whole lot was known about them, but plenty of rumors did spread. The rumors like this, the rumors were spread that they were cannibals because folks heard that they ate the body of Jesus and drank Jesus' blood. It was said that they believed in incest and orgies because they had this thing called the love feast because they called each other brothers and sisters. Other rumors that they were about magic when really they were about miracles. And that they were atheists because they only believed in one God. Well, that's changed. But what they were really hated for was they didn't swear an oath and didn't pledge to Caesar. What they were really hated for is they had high ethical standards and refused to attend the, the Roman liturgical violent games, right? It was meant to shape society and distract them from the business of the politicians. What they were really hated for is they refused to abandon newborns and they actually would take them in when Roman families discarded of them and they cared for the elderly when people saw no use for them too. They refused to glorify lust and greed and they only worshiped Christ as they rejected idols. This is what the early church was hated for. And ultimately, Pliny found that the movement was harmless, but Christians would still be tortured and executed on the grounds of obstinacy and stubbornness. Just because they refused, they would be executed. This, this sort of opposition, you, you may know, led to the first apologists. Apologia, the Greek word that means to defend, to defend the faith. The first defenders of the faith, the faith, the early church fathers who then began to systematize Christian faith and doctrine as a part of their defense. By the third century, the church had developed a creed laying out an orthodoxy, what it is that they believed. They developed church structures which varied from place to place. They developed church liturgies and symbols and, and icons and using art in their worship. We can see this from the earliest times in, in catacombs as art has been painted on the walls of these underground cemeteries. You see, Christian persecution was at its worst under the Roman Emperor Diocletian at the end of the third century. And in the year 305, he decreed that all churches be destroyed, that bishops be imprisoned, and a choice given to deny Christ or suffer death. And all of this was done in an attempt to make Rome great again, if I could say that. I'm not making this up. The power and the glory of Rome was waning, and they said, how do we get this back? And who is to blame? You thought there's always somebody to blame. Well, they blamed the Christians. They believed the gods weren't happy with these weirdos who worshipped a crucified criminal who was crucified by them, mind you, and proclaimed a kingdom greater than that of Caesar's, a rival euangelion, a rival good news. And for that, many followers of Jesus were put to death for their confession and creed. 
Christianity continues to grow despite the persecution. As one early church father wrote, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. But nevertheless, years of persecution does have its traumatic effects on the church. Just when persecution was at its worst, a, a major change happened that would become a temptation too great for Christians to refuse. You know what this is? In an effort to unite a divided empire, a rising political leader named Constantine wins a battle against his political rival, claiming the victory was foretold by the Christian God who gave him a sign in the sky to confirm it. So Constantine defeats his enemies and he panders to Christians who at this point were probably around three to five million in the empire. That's no small number. And of course, as you know, it wouldn't be the last time that a politician panders to God's people to further their agendas. These days, all you got to do is say, I read the Bible, I go to church, I'm a good Christian, and everybody believes it. Regardless of how they live and what they say. Well, Constantine was like that. Constantine proclaims that there should be one God. Listen to this. This is a, this is a great unifying campaign, isn't it? There's one God, and there should be one emperor, not two, as there were. There should be one God, one emperor, one glorious Christian state. How about that? He first issues an edict of religious toleration in 313, and about 10 years later, he finally gets everything he wants. And of course, the church welcomes this freedom. It's kind of hard to blame them. They welcome this, this freedom to express their religion, to stop being persecuted, and stop having to worship and hiding. And even though many would be skeptical of Constantine's claim to faith, as evidence shows, he actually still worshiped the sun god. He thought it was clever. Sun god, son of god, who will notice? And then in 325 AD, Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the empire and, con and concerned with keeping a unified state, he requests that church bishops and leaders come together to settle some ongoing disputes about their beliefs, specifically dealing with what most of the church perceived as a heresy being taught by a charismatic leader named Arius. And so the main purpose of this council was to heal the divide in the church caused by Arianism, which challenged the deity of Christ and undermined the doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine which had become the official church position in the second century, the previous century. And listen, contrary to what many opponents of our faith want to say about Nicaea, this council did not invent the deity of Christ. Instead, this council affirmed and defined what it had found to be the teachings of the apostles regarding the identity of Christ. And, and they expounded upon and clarified what was written in the earlier apostles' creed, thus creating the lengthier Nicene Creed to directly address Arianism. And many Christian traditions in the West still quote this creed regularly. After the Council of Nicaea, the, the a turning of a major chapter in Christian history occurred. And the church over the years continued to develop theology, Christian symbols and art, practices of prayer, worship liturgies, the church calendar, and so forth. And yes, there were always those who sought to reform the church and resist the corrupting influence of politics and paganism. But as we all know, it would be a long time before the Christendom Project runs its course. Two other major events I'll just mention real quickly. Uh, in 1054 AD, the East and West Western Church 
uh, split. We had to call it the Great Schism, which so we have what forms as the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic originally simply meant universal church, and then the Eastern Orthodox Church. Orthodox meaning those who believe right. So get that. We're the one church, and we're the church that believes right. How about that? But this is caused by cultural and political issues stemming from divisions within the empire as well as theological differences. And then skipping, skipping. In the 16th century, we have the Protestant Reformation responding to the many abuses of the Western church of that day. And then, of course, out of that comes the radical wing, the Anabaptists. And a lot of major changes we see happening there. A slow untethering of the church from the state. A, a, a slow unraveling of Christendom. It's taken a while. But that's when it started. Uh, an acceptance of, this, of the doctrine sola scriptura. The scriptures are central. Uh, we, we, we also have this doctrine of priesthood of the believer that is recovered. But I think that it should be said that Protestants, even Anabaptists, theology and church practice, hear me, was a little bit of an overreaction to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. We do that, don't we? We do that. We overreact. Sometimes. We, we can see that in the rejection of liturgy. We can see that in the rejection of Christian art and icons. Get those things out. Those are idols, some Christians said. We see that in totally stripping baptism and communion of any mysterious sacramental significance. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. Nothing more. Leading some Christians to say, then, well, we could just do it once a year and be fine, right? And of course... Another overreaction, taking more of a Western Socratic early modern approach to Scripture, biblical interpretation, discipleship, than an Eastern more contemplative, sometimes allegorical and mystical approach, which I think we should recover. Nevertheless, out of the Protestant Reformation came this explosion of various traditions. Many, if not most of you, have grown up in one of those which did in fact grow the Christian religion. So it's not all bad. Just take a look at the snapshot of the variety of Christian religion today. 2.42 billion Christians worldwide. This is how we sort of divide up. Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, all of the Protestant denominations, including the Anabaptists, the Anglicans and Episcopals. And you think, well, what brings about these changes and divisions in the church? Because this is plenty for folks who are spiritual but not religious to scoff at, you know? Well, it's, it's a lot. It's theological and doctrinal disputes. It's biblical authority. Is, is the Bible inspired? And if so, which books? And should we, should we uh, you know, adhere to the church traditions and church councils? And, and how, how authoritative are those, those decisions? And what about biblical interpretation? There's differences of meaning over the text and how we should live in the world on a variety of issues. Church polity, we differ on that. And, and depending on what language you use in worship and what culture and, 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 and um, location that you're in, all of it can differ. And of course, we have renewal movements and responses to changing times. This is also why we see such variety. And clearly, there's a lot of room for our differences, which is why John Wesley, an 18th century revivalist whose theology has impacted us, the brethren in Christ, followed this time-tested approach. He said, in essentials, what? You know this? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, freedom. And in all things, Charity, right? Or grace, gracious orthodoxy, 
loving orthodoxy. You know, and I think the church of the future needs to listen a little bit more to John Wesley and embrace the inherent paradoxes of the Christian faith, except that we're all in the same family and be willing to, willing to be challenged by one another. Amen? I haven't asked for an amen in a while. Can I get a better one than that? Amen? amen. All right. Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. I can understand. Look, I can understand, as I said, that some of the nuns and spiritual not, but not religious folks see all the differences within Christianity and, and have just thrown up their hands in dismay and frustration with the church, especially when probably the majority of us have experienced some sort of church split. And it's exhausting. I, I, I get it. I understand. Uh, th this is not good for Jesus. But I do want us to keep this in mind. It's important to keep in mind that within the realm of Orthodox Christianity, Denominations are often the result of brothers and sisters disagreeing on secondary issues, not primary issues. Keep that in mind. Because while many divisions are prompted by disagreement, we've also seen how the Spirit uses new and fresh expressions to bring renewal to the church, to keep moving us forward, to keep recontextualizing the gospel for today because it is inevitable we all sort of get to this place and it's like, this is great, this is perfect, let's not change anything. Let's all live on farms and isolate ourselves and, and just get locked into the 15th and 16th centuries or something. You've probably never heard of a group like that. But while many divisions are, you know, are prompted by this, the, gospel, the, the, the Spirit is using this to propel the gospel forward. This is why I agree with Bonnie Christian in her book, Flexible Faith. Uh, flexible faith, rethinking what it means to follow Jesus today. Uh, she said, a vibrant diversity within Christian orthodoxy, which is simply to say a range of different ways to faithfully follow Jesus, is a strength of our faith, not a weakness. She says, now that's not to say Christianity should be just randomly bent to fit any preference or lifestyle. We can't set ourselves up as individual arbiters of what's right and wrong and the true or false and deciding what Christianity is, what, whatever we personally want it to be. She says diversity within orthodoxy still has its limits. It reminds me of the theologian Alistair McGrath. He said that Christianity at its best avoids both fundamentalism and liberalism. That's why we're third way here at Grantham. Christianity's best avoids fundamentalism and liberalism. The first rejects culture, and the latter accommodates too much to culture. So there you go. Good reason for needing the spectrum of conservative to progressive Christians in the church. Folks, you do yourself a disservice when you go to a church that just thinks like you. And you can find that. You can find plenty of churches like that. But here at Grantham, we're trying to do this differently. Catch that vision. Catch that vision. Furthermore, listen to what Winfield Bevins writes in his book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation. He says, what makes Christian orthodoxy stand apart in our postmodern world is its clear statements of what we believe and the commitment to hold to these beliefs regardless of the relativism we find in the world. This hasn't changed for 2,000 years. We confess the same thing. While others may abandon their beliefs for the latest trends, Christians are rooted, holding firm, concrete beliefs about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, because that's critical, right? Because uh, what we believe shapes our identity and ultimately who we are. Bevins goes on, he says, Our orthodoxy, that is right beliefs, are important for discipleship because orthodoxy is directly connected to orthopraxy, that is right action. 
Bevan says the practical application of a belief is an action taken in response to or based on that belief. This is why what we believe about God matters immensely. And we need to be reminded of this every time we worship. What we believe about God influences how we think, pray, worship, and ultimately how we live. And this is why it's important for all Orthodox Christians, you see, to have a common creed. We're turning the corner here this morning in this message. What is a creed? It comes from the Latin credo, which simply means I believe. Creed is a statement of the basic beliefs of a religion, an idea or a set of beliefs that guides the actions of a person or a group. And you know, the Bible actually contains a number of creed-like passages. In case you're a little leery of creeds, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which we saw last week, Jesus recited. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Paul uh, recites there in his passage on the resurrection, an early creedal statement from the first century. 1 Timothy 3, 16 is another. As we've already seen, the early church develops creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Athanasian Creed, and so forth, that were born for good reason. To respond to their situation by giving a defense for what they believed. To shape disciples by their worship. And to unite Christians everywhere. Regardless of how they feel about secondary issues. You know, while the BIC has never been quick to embrace creeds, I think we were right to accept the Apostles' Creed into our Constitution in 1961, which came during efforts to grow a declining church. Maybe we need to see how we are more like other Christians than different. Yet some within the BIC will still say, we have no creed but the Bible. I, I understand. I, I think I understand that sentiment. It's meant to indicate that we start with the Bible to get our beliefs and that we choose not to be a denomination with a long list of positions on secondary or peripheral issues. I affirm that. Amen, hallelujah, praise be. I affirm that. But we should recognize that a creed is a summary of our faith that helps us to articulate our beliefs in the story that we've made our own. You say, what do you believe? Well, I believe the Bible. Well, what does it say? Creeds help with that. The Apostles' Creed specifically helps with that. And in keeping with what Peter said in his epistle, we should say this, that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. Creeds help with that. Which is why all Orthodox Christians have adopted a common confession known as the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, uh, somewhere around 200 A.D., was created to bring the church together. It was created in Rome as early as the late 2nd century, but it went through a few changes before its final form. And the legend says that 12 apostles each contributed a line, but that's probably not likely. It probably bears their name more because it's consistent with New Testament teaching, which the apostles helped us with. And we should notice that the creed is a narrative of the gospel not simply points of doctrine. It's a narrative. We recited this creed earlier this morning. Here it is again, real quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start to wrap up this message. This, this, what you see here before you, is known as the ecumenical version of the Apostles' Creed. 
we're actually going to be ordering little cards that you can, of this creed that you can put in your Bible and you can, you can use in your private devotion or memorize for worship. Uh, just notice some slight differences here from the way maybe you may have said that, said that growing up in your tradition. Uh, the first thing you'll notice is we use creator instead of maker. No biggie there. They mean the same thing. The second thing, we say he descended to the dead instead of he descended into hell because that is a particular tradition's interpretation that Jesus literally went to sort of a Dante's Inferno scene and, uh, and set the captives free based on really obscure passage in Peter. But the idea here is that Jesus died. Jesus went to the grave. Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek. Another thing you'll notice is we say Holy Spirit instead of ghost. We're not talking about paranormal activity. We say the Holy Spirit instead of the Holy Ghost. And we stick with this. Look at this. We stick with Catholic. Little c. Because Catholic was around before Catholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Catholic simply means the one church. Before Roman Catholicism was born, we said this together. We are one church. Holy Catholic church. I, I remember um, after we had left the institutional church and for about five years, we met in homes and uh, just, you know, I said, figured out our theology and healed from the hurt that was caused us. And when we re-entered the organized church, it was a Methodist church. And every Sunday we recited the Apostles' Creed. And I grew up Southern Baptist. We never did that, you know. It's too liturgical. And I just have to say, wow, was it powerful to be reminded of these basic beliefs and also to sense this great level of unity with Christians all over the world. Recall how important that unity is from Jesus in John 17. He prayed this in his high priestly prayer. He said, I, Father, make them one as we are one, so that the whole world will know that we are your people. Make their unity complete. The world will know you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Therefore, to proclaim our faith this morning, I know we said it already. Let's say it one more time together as we begin to close here. Say this with me, church. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. And finally, church, I'd like to leave you with this this morning. Some of you will remember the late Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins was a Christian singer and songwriter best known for his song, Awesome God. Rich was once described by Amy Grant as the uneasy conscience of Christian music. He was very prophetic. He was a modern-day prophet who had taken a vow of poverty like St. Francis of Assisi, and he gave his earnings to those in need. He would spend his final days living with a Navajo in New Mexico before his untimely death in a Jeep accident 
while on his way to a benefit concert. In his song, Creed, based on the Apostles' Creed, Rich wrote these words. This is what I want to leave you with, and I want us to make these words our own. Rich said, And I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. May this be the reason that we are so graciously uncompromising in what we confess as followers of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we know that we are part of an ancient story, an ancient faith. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of that this morning. God, we ask that you would help us to believe and be shaped by that belief. Even on the Sunday mornings when we're not sure, remind us with this creed. Help us to believe. And Lord, we ask that you unite your church around the globe in this common creed that we say together. Because we didn't make it. It is making us. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. And Lord, lastly, we pray that you would let us be known by our love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.